righty, well, come on back and um, take a Bible and uh, open it up to the Psalms, if you wouldn't mind. And, um, and um, open up to Psalm 64, whether you care about this or not. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. But my favorite psalm is Psalm 63, so I'm a little jealous that Xander got to do that last week. But anyway, I'm thankful for him, though, and uh, that he uh, did such a good job and, uh, while we were away. But now we get on to Psalm 64, and let me remind you of who David is. You all know him, but think about David's life, and we talked about this a couple weeks ago, but just think about David's life. I mean, there's some indications in the scriptures that he was sort of shunned or not thought of as well as uh, the other people in his family. He was sort of the young runt of the family who they sort of ignored and didn't even think was worth a lot, especially when it came to battle. So think about that. I mean, he would have had, in some respects, tough growing up. Obviously, when he gets... Uh, going and uh, is uh, united with this guy named Saul, as you all know, <laughs> he had significant amount of problems. The people, the person he was working for gets jealous of him and wants to kill him. And then not only is he working for him, he eventually becomes his son-in-law. And he's chasing him all around the, the wilderness and throwing things at him to try to kill him. And and in the middle of all that, there's lots of backstabbing and lots of, uh, uh, I mean, it's, it's dramatic. I mean, there's a lot of talking against him, a lot of plot against him, a lot of people that want to kill him or do him in or get him off the throne. That would be sort of unsettling. He knew he was to be the anointed one and the appointed one as the king, and yet he sort of had to wait out his turn with Saul. Of course, he has several things happen to him, like, you know, he uh, shows up at a city and is sort of uh, talking to some priests, and there's a snitch there, Doeg the Edomite, and Doeg the Edomite ends up killing lots of the priests that David was visiting. I mean, think about that. That would have an impact on your emotional well-being here and your spiritual well-being. And so, why am I telling you all this? I think why I'm telling you all this is that David is like us. Of course, David was involved in adultery and murder. And I mean, he ran the gamut here, folks. And yet the real and raw life of David is set forth here in 150 psalms, songs, poems. He didn't write all of them, but he wrote lots of them. And here we're going, getting ready to read some that are very nondescript. And I've sat where you sat during a review through all of the Psalms. And I can just tell you, my mind could start to wander when we get to about 64, 65, 66, 67. But I just want to say something, just hang in there till the end. Because the fact that they're nondescript, to me, is a very important spiritual lesson. And hopefully I can bring that out here at the end. 
Here we begin in Psalm 64. Psalm 64, some think this was written during his son's rebellion, Absalom. But who knows if that's right? It doesn't really tell you. There's some indications, there's some hints, but we don't know. So, but just, just listen to this. Here it is, Psalm 64, to the chief musician, a psalm of David. We don't really know the circumstances, and that's the point. Hear my voice, O God, in my meditation. And I wonder here, I don't even know what it means, but here I just wonder. Was he speaking out loud and asked the Lord to hear him, or was he speaking silently inside and asked the Lord to hear him? How do you pray? Just think about that. Sometimes do you pray out loud? Yeah. You pray out loud. You ever prayed out loud in the car and the person next to you at the lights going, what is going on over there? But whatever, he's saying, hear my voice, O God, in my meditation. This is a very interesting next phrase. He says, preserve my life from fear of the enemy. I want you to notice here, he didn't ask the Lord to have his life preserved from the enemy. He knew that wasn't probably going to happen. What he did ask for, though, was not to be fearful of the enemy. And we know that fear can be paralyzing. Amen? Fear can be crippling. And here, David, through all his trials and tribulations, if it is with Absalom and the the different counselors that sort of betrayed him in that story and all that sort of thing, it would be a fearful time or you would have an inclination to be fearful. And David was wise. Preserve my life from the fear of the enemy. In other words, he was, as one author put it, afraid of being afraid. And that's a good thing. And so he asked, he, he, he talked to the Lord about it. He went in prayer and said, Lord, I'm not necessarily asking you to switch the circumstances, but don't let me fear the enemy. Help me to be bold and create, uh, courageous in the middle of a really tough and awful circumstance, or circumstance. Hide me from the secret plots of the wicked, from the rebellion of the workers of iniquity, who sharpen their tongue like a sword making plans to kill him, who sharpen their tongues like a sword. It seems like they're making plans to kill him. And watch this. They bend their bows to shoot their arrows. And what are the bows, or excuse me, what are the arrows that he's talking about that happened to him or that are coming towards him? They're bitter words. You ever had anybody talking bad about you? How's it feel? It rains down on you and it hurts. And here, something was happening And David uh, was describing it. Their tongues were like a sword. I mean, they want to kill and bend their bows to shoot. Now, you know, there was another character. I've mentioned him before in the Psalms. I'm not 100% sure that this Psalm is about this character, but remember the character Ahithophel, who was originally the counselor of King David, but he later betrayed David by aiding Absalom. Do you remember that character? And... uh, uh, Ahithophel was known for his advice, uh, and so uh, Absalom was happy uh, to have him. And it's a long story, but something happened. Uh, he, he sort of sent and told some 
good advice to um, uh, Absalom, but David had snuck in another advisor, a spy named Hushai, and it turns out that Absalom listened to Hushai instead of uh, Ab- or, excuse me, Ahithophel, and Ahithophel hung himself. Do you remember that story? So maybe he's talking about somebody like that counselor. They sharpen their tongue like a sword and they bend their bows, bows to shoot their arrow and their bitter words that they may shoot in secret at the blameless. Isn't it awful when this people have been conspiring in the back rooms in the darkness, you know, uh, to get you, that they may shoot in secret at the blameless. Suddenly they shoot at him and do not fear and it happens quickly. They encourage themselves in an evil matter. They talk of lying snares secretly. They say, who will see them? They devise iniquities. We've perfected a shrewd uh, scheme. Both the inward thought and the heart of man are deep. In other words, without the Lord in our lives, there's an endless, bottomless pit of evilness in men's heart or evil in men's heart. I don't know if that was grammatically correct. But watch, here's the pivot. It always is the pivot but God. Now I want you to notice something. God will shoot at them with an arrow, not arrows, because God doesn't miss. Isn't that interesting? They shoot at him with arrows. He prays and God in response shoots with boom, one arrow because God doesn't miss. God is our defense. And David came to know this in the very difficult times. And suddenly they shall be wounded. So he shall make or will make them stumble over their own tongue. And that's why I told you the story of Ahithophel. Ahithophel stumbled over his words and ended up dying. By the way, the Bible tells us in Galatians 5, uh, right around verse 15, don't bite one another. Don't bite at each other. If you're part of the Christian family, listen, just like anything, there might be some people you don't exactly, you know, or you aren't close with, but they're brothers and sisters in the Lord. Don't bite and backbite because it tells us in that scripture that we'll be devoured or we'll devour each other. And that's no way to live in the Christian life. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. If you have something against a brother, go talk to them about them. Go talk to them about it kindly and with compassion and love. And check your heart before you go. And oh, by the way, love covers a multitude of sins. If somebody sits in your pew seat, it's not, an, uh, it's not an occasion to arrange a meeting with somebody and talk to them about how they violated your space. Love covers a multitude of sins. But if there is something, then we're to go. We're not to backbite or to bite. All who see them shall fee- flee away, the end of verse 8. All men shall fear and shall declare the work of God for they shall wisely consider his doing. This is what the Lord is telling us right here. When you stay quiet and let the Lord do your battles, and when he does them, because he will do them, it's an occasion for the world to see how powerful the Lord is. That's what he just told us right here. It's another way in which you shine forth 
the deep love of God in Jesus Christ, who being accused didn't open his mouth. Can you hardly believe I would have been every argument, everything. I, my mind would have been going about how the trials were. He, he didn't open his mouth. Why? Because he knew there was something greater and higher at stake. What is that? Us. Before there's joy and there's the crown, there's always the cross. So they're going to wisely consider his doing. Look at this. The righteous shall be glad in the Lord and trust in him. And all in the upright in heart shall glory. Now I want you to just see from the beginning to the last. This is the way poetry goes in the Hebrew world. The beginning is fear, deception, backbiting. The end is glad in the Lord and trusting. That's on purpose. Hebrew-wise, poetry-wise. And so the truth, though, is that when we let the Lord do our battles, we'll be glad people to rejoice and be glad. That's what that word means. Okay, Psalm 65. This is a celebration of both physical and spiritual harvest. How do I know that? Because there's some verses, and when I get to them, I'll sort of point them out to you, hopefully, that seem to suggest that this is set in the harvest time, during the uh, time of the um, uh, Yom Kippur, and then the Feast of the Tabernacles. This would have been in October, which was the beginning of their civil calendar. Now, here we go. You ready for this? This one got me this week. This will choke you up right here. You're like, what? Okay. Praise is awaiting you, O God, in Zion, and to you the vow shall be performed. Now, see, none of us here know Hebrew, I, I don't think. I don't think any of us know Hebrew, but maybe some of you do, or at least one of us does. But here's one thing you can do. You can go to the Blue Letter Bible and just look up the Hebrew words. And what's fascinating here is praise is awaiting Awaiting has a root word. The root word for awaiting right there is silent. And so Warren Wiersbe says, says this in his commentary about this verse. The opening verse is literally, to you, praise is silence, which doesn't really convey very much, but the NSA, NAS Bible combines this, both. There will be silence before thee and praise in Zion, O God. The Hebrew word for silence is very similar to the word for, watch this, fitting or proper. So some translate this verse, praise is fitting for you. That is, it is fitting that your people praise you. But watch this, silence is also a part of worship. And we must learn to wait quietly before the Lord. Now, it's interesting because there's a time, right, to clap and to jump and to be happy. I mean, David did it uh, in his underwear, and his wife was like, what is going on over there? But anyway, David did it, and there's a time to shout joyfully and, and to, to say amen and all that sort of thing. But there's also a time to be quiet. And I think this is interesting I, th I read this in two ways, and I want you to just think about this for a minute. There is a time 
when you and I are to be silent before the Lord, like, like we make ourselves be silent before the Lord. I think there's something to that because I think the Lord wants to speak to us a lot of times and impress upon us something through his word, but we're too busy just spouting off all the needs and supplications that we have. Of course, God says, bring your needs and supplications, but we write all those out and never listen. So I think there's something to that. But I think there's something even greater and more touching than that. I think sometimes the goodness of God is so overwhelming, you just can't even talk. Have you ever just been praying or worshiping the Lord? And you just, it just hits you. Whatever it is, he's so awesome in whatever way the Lord brings that to your mind. And, and there's, it's just, you, you go silent. There's nothing to say. You're just in awe. And that's what this verse is about. David was putting that forth in this psalm. He's, praise is awaiting you, O God, in Zion. And everything we just talked about, we're going to, it's fitting that we praise you on the holy hill in this sanctuary. It's fitting that we're quiet before the Lord. And Lord, when we come to you, we're expecting that you're going to do something or show yourself to us in a way that's just going to make us be quiet. Who, who here has trouble being quiet? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then it says, and to you, the vow will be performed. Now remember, we're talking about Mount Zion. There'd be a lot of vows on Mount Zion. People bringing their animals up there. Lord, I'll never do it again. Thank you for covering my sins. Oh, there'd be lots of vows. But I want you to remember what was the greatest vow that ever happened on Mount Zion. <laughs> it, it was this vow. <laughs> Lord, if there's any way, there's any way, Lord, let this cup pass from me, but not my will. Yours be done. That's the greatest vow. And it happened right here. And to you, the vow shall be performed. Oh, you who hear prayer, you, you know, for all of David's whatever, flaws, things that you could talk about, there's one thing about David that you can't say that he was not a man of prayer. <laughs> this guy came to the Lord. James addresses this in the New Testament, and I think it's so true. In your frustrations, in my frustrations, in my busyness of life, I forget lots of time to go and ask my father. James says, you, you don't have because you don't ask. Not really a problem for David. Oh, you who hear prayer, to all flesh will come. Iniquities prevail against me as for our transgression. Watch this. You will provide atonement for them. That's why many people believe it was the uh, day of atonement uh, in, in the uh, harvest time. Blessed is the man you choose. Oh, do you think God chooses or does man Respond. Is it God's sovereignty or man's responsibility? Yes, the answer is yes. And here you see God's choosing and praise the Lord for that. Aren't you glad that the Lord chooses you? Yes. 
Blessed is the man, happy is the man, and we can approach him and cause to approach you that he may dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, of your holy temple. By awesome deeds and righteousness, you will answer us. Now, I just got to tell you, there's one way you can record and think about and not be fickle the awesome deeds of the Lord and his prayer responses or his prayer, um, his answer to prayer. Write it down. <laughs> that sounds really simple, but grab a Bible or, and a journal and a pen and take it with you wherever you go. Put it in a backpack, and when you have lunch and you're doing your devotion, have a journal with you because I'm telling you, the Lord is going to answer your prayers. And you and I, as vital, dynamic, spirit-filled Christians, we want the thrill of answered prayer. Amen? But here's the problem, for me at least, and I think for you too. I'm fickle. I forget. And so when I put the answered prayer down, I can go back and say, wow, can you believe that the Lord did this amazing. And that's what he's telling you right here by awesome deeds and righteousness. You'll answer us. O God of our salvation. You who are the confidence of all the ends of the earth and of the far off seas who established the mountains by his strength. You being clothed with power, you who still the noise of the sea, the noise of their waves and the tumult of the people. By the way, did you notice that he calms the seas and the noise of the waves and quiets down peoples. That's interesting, man. I'll let you think about that and look that up. Also, who dwell in the farthest parts are afraid of your signs. You make the outgoings of the morning and evening rejoice. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. You ever said a prayer for rain and snow and... Well, good, because I've never really done it, and I need to do it. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide grain, for so you have prepared it. You water its ridges abundantly. You settle its furrows. You make it soft with showers. You bless it with growth. Wow, the earth is full of living and growing things, and it's all around us, and I wonder if we ever pay attention too much or not enough. You ever thought about some of these flowers that the Lord has for us? We used to live in Hawaii, man. And all I know is Jan knows about them. I don't really know about them. But when I would walk into those hotels and that plumeria smell, it's almost too hard to believe. It smells so amazing and it's everywhere in the islands. Well, I could, you could go on and on. But here, you crown, verse 11, the year with your goodness, and your paths drip with abundance. They drop on the pastures of the wilderness, and the little hills rejoice on every side. Uh, the pastures are clothed with flocks. The valleys also are covered with grain. They shout for joy. They also sing. Here's another poetic device. You start in silence. You end in shouting. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> and you and I, right, just go to wherever you walk in southwestern Pennsylvania during the fall time or during the springtime. You say it, I say it. Wow, look what the Lord has done with those buds or that mountain or this tree or those leaves. We serve a God of creation and love. And he's big and powerful and he can do all these things. And that's what nature screams to us. 
Watch this, Psalm 66. This is to the chief musician a song and a psalm. So who wrote it? I don't know. Um, some believe King Hezekiah wrote this psalm. And I don't know if you remember this, but in Isaiah, King Hezekiah was one of the last of the Judah kings. And Assyria had just got, had, uh, you know, overpowered the north, but now they were coming down to overpower Judah. And they got right up to the walls, Assyria. And through a series of miraculous events, Jerusalem was saved. And so many think that King Hezekiah was writing this, but truly no one knows for sure. But watch this. Make a joyful shout to God, all the earth. Sing out the honor of his name. The honor of his name. That word means dignity and reputation and reverence. Make his praise glorious. Say to God, how awesome are your works. Do you know, not know what to pray? Well, there you go. <laughs> Say to God, how awesome are your works through the greatness of your power. Through the greatness of your power. Your enemies shall submit themselves to you. All the earth shall worship you and sing praises to you. They shall sing praises to your name. Selah, come and see the works of God. Now watch this. Some of us are going to read this and go, okay, yeah, I believe that. But I wonder if we really believe it. He is awesome in his doing toward the sons of men. He's awesome in how he relates to you and to me. And really, only one could be described as awesome, and that's God. And here's what happened. He turned the sea into dry land. He turned the sea into dry land. They went through the river on foot. There we will rejoice in him. He rules by his power forever. His eyes observe the nations. Don't let the rebellious exalt themselves. Oh, bless our God. That means make him adored, adored. And make the voice of his praise uh, to be heard. Now, many people believe, if you'll check it out, that chapter verses 1 through 7, all the earth is him exhorting and building up the Gentile nations. And now here in verse 8, oh, bless our God, you peoples. He's now moving on to Israel. And then in 13 through 20, he concludes whoever's writing this with the individual believer. But watch this. Oh, bless our God, verse 8, you peoples, and make the voice of his praise to be heard, who keeps our soul among the living and does not allow our feet to be moved. For you, O oh God, have tested us. You have refined us as silver is refined. God is a consuming fire, folks, and he is refining us. That is a good thing. And in order to refine, especially silver and gold and those things, guess what a goldsmith has to do or a silversmith has to do? They have to turn up the fire, the furnace, really, really hot. Uh, Chuck Smith says this on this verse, Pastor Chuck Smith. At times we think God is, uh, God's testing is going to destroy us or designed to destroy us, but 
Really, his testing helps us to understand ourselves. Listen to that. His testing helps us to understand ourselves, to know our limitations, our weaknesses, so we'll learn to trust in God and not ourselves. The purpose of refining silver is to rid the impurities by a tremendous fire. It's heated until the silversmith can see his face reflected in the silver. God has tried us as silver. He heats or tests us for the burning out of the impurities. Watch this. So when he looks at us, he sees his reflection. Oh, boy. So he says that you've been refined, you've refined us as silver. You brought us into the net. You laid affliction on our backs. You've caused men to ride over our heads. We went through fire, through water, but you brought us out to rich fulfillment, fulfillment like abundance. Now watch, I will go into your house with burnt offerings. I will pay you my vows, which my lips have uttered and my mouth has spoken when I was in trouble. I will offer you burnt sacrifices of fat animals with the sweet, sweet aroma of rams. I'll offer bulls with goats. Selah, come and hear all you who fear God, and I will declare what he has done for my soul. Maybe it's Hezekiah. Maybe it's not. But listen, I cried to him with my mouth, and he was extolled with my tongue. So I prayed to him. And I praised him. See how prayer and praise in verse 17 are connected? Watch this. A very famous verse. But I wonder if you've ever paid attention to one of the words. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. You're like, uh-oh. I sort of said a cuss word maybe last week. I wonder if the Lord's going to hear me. I didn't actually say that, but... Or I did this, or I did that last week. But I want you to know something. The word regard means to recognize and to cherish. And, and, and I want you to hear this. It's when you have an unwillingness to confess and to forsake known sins. That's what that word regard means. If there's something in your life, you have a grudge against somebody. People, grudges are a big deal. And you, uh, regard means to recognize and to cherish and to be unwilling to confess and to uh, forsake known sins. You're unwilling. I know I'm supposed to reconcile with that person, but I don't care. They drive me batty. I'm not doing it. Well, let me read this to you. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. By the way, there's another place in the New Testament, which is fascinating. It says that if a husband and a wife, mostly the husband, is not living in understanding with his wife and has the things between him and his wife, his prayers won't be heard. Interesting. So the question becomes, am I regarding, regarding iniquity anywhere in my heart? Hmm. I'm not talking about a sin. You're confessing it. You're moving on. That's something different. It's something that you're holding on to it and you won't repent of it. That's regarding. But certainly God has heard me as he attended the voice of my prayer. That's funny to me, but anyway. But certainly God has heard me. 
That's what he's saying. But anyway, blessed be God who has not turned away my prayer nor his mercy from me. Okay, Psalm 67. A psalm of praise to God for all his blessing. As well as a prayer that his blessings will flow out to the uh, Gentiles. To the chief musician on a stringed instrument, a psalm, a song. God be merciful to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us. Selah, that your way may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. Now I want you to just know something here. It's just not all about us. It's not all about you. The Christian life. If you read this psalm, it's really sort of uh, very perceptive and very, he's learned something. Whoever wrote this has learned something. And what they've learned, whoever wrote this, is that it's not all about him or her. Him. It's not all about the person. See, because here's what we're apt to do. Pray the first line. God, be merciful to me. Bless me. Cause my, your face to shine upon me. Period. In fact, if you lot of watch a lot of Christian TV, you hear this a lot. Lord, give me a $6,000 watch, and if I pray hard enough, you'll give me. Maybe it'll even be 10000 and I need high-top shoes that cost 1000 bucks a pair, and I need a gold watch, and I need to look cool, and blah, 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 blah. And then that. It's not about us, because there's a that in verse 2. See, really it's about the Lord. God be merciful to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us. Why? So you'll be cool and great and have lots of money? No. That your way may be known on earth. See, the only way, I just got to say this. The only way you're going to be fulfilled in the Christian life is if you stop being a consumer Christian. When you go to Israel with us, this is very fascinating. There's this body of water up at the top, and the water comes down from the mountains. It's fed into this little stream called something like the Jordan River, and it goes into the Sea of Galilee. And this thing is beautiful. It's so glorious and so wonderful. And then the Jordan River, it looks like a little muddy creek, or crick, depending on where you're from. But anyway, it looks like a little muddy creek. And it goes down, and then it goes into this body of water. Oh, you may have heard of it. It's called the Dead Sea. And one of the reasons the Dead Sea is dead is because, listen, the Dead Sea doesn't empty into anything. It just stops. And that's the way we are. (laughs) Consumer Christians. It's the American church. The American church, in many ways, is the Dead Sea shrinking and shriveling and having no power and just waiting, like Ezekiel says, a touch from the Lord so that it can come alive again. And one of the things I think that whole geographical structure is telling us is you're only going to be healthy as you give out to others. And so I'm wondering, you know, if you're spiritually dry, You know, one of the things I think maybe you should check in your life or I should check in my life, where am I serving? Who am I serving? Or am I just coming to church and doing the thing, checking it off the list? 
Here, look what he says, that your uh, way may be known on earth, your salvation among all the nations. Let the people praise you, O God, that all the peoples praise you. O let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you shall judge the people righteously and govern the nations on earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God, let the peoples praise you. Then the earth shall yield her increase. God, her own God, shall bless us. God shall bless us and all the ends of the earth shall fear him. And I got lots to say about that, but here, I just want you to see just simply, when you pray the beginning of the prayer, but you have an intention that all that your blessings will be turned around and used for his glory, not just held on to, like the Dead Sea, your life becomes vibrant and alive and full of joy and praise. And here, that's what this psalm is all about. Now watch this. We'll finish out with this one. Psalm 68, a longer psalm. This is really interesting. It says, let God arise, verse 68. It's a psalm of David. And you say, okay, no big deal. What does that mean? Well, that's a big deal because when Moses was marching through the promised land, in Numbers 10.35, away from Egypt and up to the promised land, guess what they said to each other? Or guess what the, the uh, marching theme or song was? Let God arise. So this psalmist, David, is saying, well, the glory of God and his goodness to Israel, let's start this psalm out under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit with the marching song, the one in the wilderness Numbers 10, verse 35. So here you have an emphasis on God's mighty acts on behalf of Israel, uh, uh, resulting in his decision to ultimately uh, reign and rule and, on Mount Zion. And one fascinating uh, 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 aspect of this psalm is the n several different names of God that are used throughout the psalm. Elohim 23 times, Jehovah is used, Jah is used, which is the short uh, form for Jehovah, as, as like in hallelujah, uh, that's used, Adonai is used, El Shaddai. But here we go. Let God arise, the marching song, that's what I call it, I don't know if that's proper, but that's what I call it. Let his enemies be scattered. Let those who hate him flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so drive them away. As wax melts before the fire, so let the wicked perish at the presence of God. But let the righteous be God. Let them rejoice before God. Yes, let them rejoice exceedingly. One of the things I think oftentimes when we have a besetting sin in our life, <laughs> we attack it the wrong way. What do I mean? I don't know. Anger, uh, gossip, whatever it is. You know how we attack it? We attack it by trying to muster up all of the self-control and the self-discipline. And you know, before it's Sunday night, you've already gossiped and got angry with people. Ever had that experience? Here, I think the Lord is sort of telling you how to attack anything in the Christian life. You know, for instance, if John back there turned off all the lights, the dark, and it became dark in here, I wouldn't karate kick and punch at the darkness. No, you people would think I'd lost it or something. You'd say, just go over there and do what? Just turn on the light, dude. 
And that's what he's telling you right there here. Let those who hate him flee before him. Watch this. As smoke is driven away, so drive them away. The enemies of our Christian walk, in the presence of God, just fly away like smoke or like wax melts in a fire. So let the wicked perish at the presence of God. It's the presence of God. It's the besetting sin. What is it? Get with the Lord. Spend time with the Lord. Pray with, with him. Talk to him about it. Praise him for all the things that he's doing and seek his face. And before you know it, you're not karate kicking the darkness anymore. You've simply just flipped on the light. Anyway, so he says, let them rejoice. Let them rejoice exceedingly. Sing to God. Sing praises to his name. Extol him who rides on the clouds. By the way, the Canaanite gods were said to have ridden on the clouds. And so this psalmist is saying, no, this is the one who rides the clouds. By his name, Yah, and rejoice before him. Hey, he is a father of the fatherless. A defender of widows is God in his holy habitation. And that's really fascinating to me. Who are the people that the Lord wants around? The dignitaries, the rich ones, the perfect ones? No, he wants the people who are oppressed and lonely and and, and uh, they, he wants them to come to him, right? God sets the solitary in families, and he brings out those who are bound into prosperity. He brings out the ones who are in chains into prosperity. He sets the solitary in families. You've had a terrible family. You've had a terrible home life. When you come to the Lord, look at this. He, he is your good, good father, and he sets you right here among people who love you, who actually have the very life of Christ pulsing in and out of their life. And now you can come together and you can relate to them and you can share. And it doesn't matter. Uh, you, you have this much money or this much money or you look like this or you look like that or you believe this before or believe that before. But now we're servants of the Most High and we have his life and that's our family. By the way, I'd take a time out and do a whole thing on this. So make it your family. <laughs> anyway, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> I have a whole thing about that, but that's okay. Oh, God. <laughs> uh, uh, God sits them in family. He brings out those who are bound to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in the land. Oh, God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness. And now what, what this psalmist does is he just remembers past things. Uh, when you march through the wilderness, the earth shook, hell, uh, heavens dropped rain. Some people in, in the commentaries believe he's talking about real rain, but some people believe right here what he's talking about is the manna from heaven. Sinai itself was moved at the presence of God. That's sort of an illusion. That's really a fascinating thing uh, from the song of Deborah in Judges 5. You can look that up later. You, O God, sent a plentiful rain, whereby you confirmed your inheritance when it was weary. Your congregation dwelt in it. You, O God, provided from your goodness for the poor. The Lord gave the word. When the word was heard, watch this. Great was the company of those who proclaimed it. Great is the company of those who proclaimed it. 
Kings of armies flee, they flee, and she who remains at home divides the spoil. Though you lie down among the sheepfolds, you'll be like the wings of a dove covered with silver and her feathers with yellow gold. When the Almighty scattered kings in it, it was as white as snow. Listen, listen. many commentators say this portion of the psalm right here is the most difficult to explain in all of the psalms. It's really puzzling here. So what does it mean? I don't know. <laughs> There's a number of different theories about what this uh, things, uh, what these mean. Uh, the, all throughout here, when he talks about this mountain in verse 15 of God is the mountain of Bashan. You'll actually go there if you go with us to Jerusalem and the Golan Heights. A mountain of many peaks is the mountain of Bashan. Why do you fume with envy, you mountains of many peaks? This is the mountain which God desires to dwell in. Yes, the Lord will dwell in it forever. And what that's talking about is, see, the Lord, the mountains of Bashan are way up north, and the Mount Zion, which, Mount Zion, which is where the temple is, it's not really a mountain. It's like a hill. It's not impressive. But that's the point of grace. God chooses and picks who he wants and he confounds the wise with the foolish and here he does it again. Why do you fume with envy? Uh, this is the mountain. Verse 17, the chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands of that thousands. Remember, what was ancient Israel commanded not to do? Have chariots, have horses. Remember this in Deuteronomy. But here the psalmist is saying, but God's got you because he owns the chariots. That's what he's talking about. The Lord is among them in Sinai. You have ascended on high. You have led uh, captivity captive. Do you ever wonder what that means? Tri you've triumphed or he's triumphed over all the powers that keep us in captivity. That's what that means. And the reason I'm telling you that is because Paul quotes this in Ephesians 4 8 through 10. He quotes this, you have ascended on high, you've led captivity captive, you've received gifts among men. Paul actually says you have given gifts among men, even from the rebellious, that the Lord God might dwell there. All right. Blessed be the Lord who daily loads us with benefits. Write them in your journal. Have a uh, Thanksgiving journal. The God of our salvation, our God is the God of salvation, and to God the Lord belong, or to God the Lord belong, escapes from death. But God will wound the head of his enemies. Isn't that that image from Genesis 3 when it says God will give a mortal wound uh, to the serpent? The hairy scalp of the one who still goes on in his trespasses, that just means long and shaggy and tries to look tough. In verse 22, the Lord said, I'll bring back from Bashan, I'll bring them back from the depths of the sea, that your foot might crush them in blood, and the tongues of your dogs may have your, their portion from your enemies. They've seen your procession, O God, the procession of my God, my King, into the sanctuary. Maybe one of the things that is happening here and they're talking about is when the ark was brought into the sanctuary and the singers went before the players on the instruments among them were the maidens playing timbrels bless God in the sanctuary the Lord from the mountain of Israel there is little Benjamin their leader might be little because Benjamin was the youngest but also little because there weren't as many Benjamites as others but now this is pretty spectacular 
In Psalm 68, written by David, as he's talking probably about bringing the ark back into the covenant at Mount Zion, he includes the Benjaminites, the Judahites, Zebulun, and Naphtali. He only includes four of the 12 tribes. He's probably doing it just for poetic reasons, but don't, don't miss this. Saul the one who wanted to get David, was a Benjaminite. (laughs) And he's just being very kind here and very gentle with Saul, even after all that Saul had done. Now listen, I know you're glazing over right here. I'm sort of glad you're glazing over because there's a point to this. I'm glad you're glazing over on me here. Have you ever had a pastor say that? Because that's the point of what we're going to get at. Watch this. Your God has commanded your strength. Strengthen, O God, what you have done for us because of your temple at Jerusalem. Kings will bring presents to you. That's in the future. That must be. Rebuke the beasts of the reeds. Speaking of Egypt and Ethiopia, rebuke the beasts of the reeds, the herd of bulls, till everyone submits himself with pieces of silver. Scatter the peoples who delight in war. Envoys will come out of Egypt. Ethiopia will quickly, quickly stretch out her hands to God. Sing to God, you kingdoms of er, the earth. Oh, sing praises to the Lord, to him who rides on the heaven of heavens, which were of old. Indeed, he sends out his voice, a mighty voice, ascribed strength to God. His excellence is over Israel, and his strength is in the clouds, O God. You are more awesome than your holy place. The God of Israel is he who gives strength and power to his people. Blessed be God. Now, what am I talking about? See, I've been sitting where you've sat before. I've glazed over before. I've got to Psalm 65, 66, 67, 68, and maybe even beyond that. And I've been out there going, come on, man, give it a break. see, that's the point. Do you know what the Bible tells us? The Bible tells us in uh, Timothy that we're to exercise ourselves towards godliness. Did you know it says that? Exercise ourselves towards godliness. And you know that there's a real big difference between Saul and David. God appointed Saul, and he then appointed David, and they were to be leaders and kings. And Saul sort of started out right, and then he got went off the rails. And David, you know his story, and we went through it at the beginning of this. He's had all kinds of things happen to him, tough home life, uh, uh, you know, bad working conditions, betrayal, backstabbing, uh, hurts, adultery, murder, a terrible, guilty conscience for things that happened. And yet, David succeeded in the Christian life, and Saul didn't. What's one of the differences? I'm going to put up a quote here, and I'm going to read it to you. This is from Alan Redpath's book, The Making of a Man of God. He says this, By contrast, David behaved himself wisely in all his ways, and the Lord was with him. 1 Samuel 18, 14. God was a living reality in the life of the young shepherd. And oh, by the way, I would say that God was a living reality in the life of the old king. From the time of him being a young shepherd to being an old king, God remained 
a living reality. How had that come about? That which marked the difference between these two men, Saul and David, was what they did when they were alone. David worshipped God. He meditated on his Lord day and night when he was alone with his sheep. Saul was self-indulgent. Now hold on, we'll read the rest of it in a minute. That's the point. When David went home at night, he didn't put on Grey's Anatomy. He didn't put on MTV. He didn't just chill out to Netflix and music and a glass of wine. You know what David did? He took a little pencil or whatever they used at the time and some papyrus or whatever it was. And he just sat there and he communed with the Lord. And sometimes to us, maybe you're looking through these Psalms and you're going, shoot, I wish there was more of a point. I wish I knew better what the starting point was. And sure, yes, maybe we do want to know that. But what I want you to see is, look what he was doing night after night after night. He started as a young boy in the shepherd fields of Bethlehem. But this continued his whole life. I mean, some of these things you're going, what are you even writing about? But he knew it was between him and the Lord. And he took a pen and he took a pencil. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, knowing the scriptures, he prayed, he poured out his heart, and he wrote it down. And of course, the Lord used it and under the, uh, you, you know, compiled this, and so we could see it. But Alan Redpath makes a great point. What does a person do when they were alone or are alone? David worshiped God. He meditated on his Lord day and night. And this is the proof, by the way, he kept doing it. When he was alone with his sheep, Saul was self-indulgent. What does self-indulgent mean? It means he's indulging in self. He's thinking about self. He's worried about the jealousy and the fame of David and the hurt and the struggle that he's encountering. And he's less worried about who his God is and how he can worship him. And as he practiced self-indulgent, his life spiraled out of control. David, on the other hand, same sort of things are happening to, happening to him. He's alone as a kid with the Lord, but he continues it into his life. And then read what Redpath says. What a man does when he is alone with his uh, thoughts, watch this, will decide what he is when he's in public with other people. It is there that either by self-indulgence a man's character is wrecked or by self-discipline a man's character is made. Alone with God, David meditate, and, well listen to this, and nourished his soul, not by thinking of himself, but nourished it in the Lord. He learned how to bear quietly the sneers of his brothers as he came to do battle with Goliath, 17. He was able to bear rebuke meekly, to take misrepresentation gently. Who here takes misrepresentation gently? Or do you storm in and storm out and give people a piece of your mind? 
to pass unruffled through the scathing criticism of those who should have known better. Now watch, that was only possible, or that was possible only because, watch, his heart was in tune with God. David learned that this, this one, this, ver- this sentence right here, oh my. David learned that to be strong is to be gentle when provoked and that the Lord would give him strength in the battle. Do you see the contrast? On the one hand, sinned, jealousy, bitterness, hatred, murder. On the other hand, gentleness and meekness. On the one hand, because of all the sin and hatred, there was power, powerlessness in the fight. Remember, he wouldn't go out and fight. Saul wouldn't. On the other hand, the man with a gentle and meek spirit who had meditated upon the laws of God became mighty to conquer the powers of darkness. Now you're saying, well, wait a second here. You just mentioned the word discipline. I thought you said we're about grace here. Yes, we are. Read Titus. The grace of God is not wimpy. The grace of God is a training grace that saves us from hell and then transforms us into the image of his son. So, godliness is at the end of spiritual disciplines. And here we see David exercising godliness right here. You all, me, sometimes, you all too. You read through and you just sort of go, come on, man. And what this represents is David with the candle. Just another five minutes, Lord. I'm so excited to be with you. I'm pouring my heart out with you. We're communing together. Man, the candle's burning down and I, I, I just want to, and you could just see it. Night after night after night. That was David. Let's pray. Well, Lord, (laughs) I don't want to make it seem like these psalms aren't magnificent. They are. It's just our own humanness that oftentimes (laughs) says, 150 of these? But Lord, each one is magnificent and inspired, and we're so thankful for them. And yet, Lord, it shows us that David, when he was alone, what did he do? He looked to you, Lord, and he wasn't self-indulgent. And Lord, we pray together. We pray that you'd help us in these areas. We're so easily taken off track from spending time with you and hearing from you and nourishing our souls in you, Lord. Help us not to stray. We need your power and grace. In Jesus' name, amen.